The systems and processes make it so that, you know, memory and experience is not as important as just being able to think freely and to critically think on problems. So what that really means is we're hi- we are hiring straight out of college or 18, 19 year olds. And I was training them or we were training them to to pretty much l- learn the job in front of them in a week, week and a half, and then develop them over the next however many years. Um, but the being able to sit in on our on our tech stack is you know what you're supposed to do. It's pretty, it's pretty darn easy. Now you're going to get things that are outside of scope, but that's where you critically think you raise your hand, you work with the team and we'll get you an answer. But, but there's not a lot of back end knowledge. You know, if this person's gone tomorrow, a person can step in and sit at that desk and know exactly what happened. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Sweet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Today, I have the one, the only Ben Sensenbaugh on the show. Ben, thanks for coming on. Jordan, it's an honor to be here. Bro, it's been a long time coming. We were just reminiscing before we turned on the mic that we've known each other for around seven years or so, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a heck of a roller coaster, <laughs> for sure. You know, you're, you've uh, introduced me to some amazing people, you know, and, and been a huge influence, and this podcast is definitely part of it. It's been a part of my journey, a biggest part of my oh, man. success. I'm, I'm honored. It's been, yeah. a, it's been a joy to collaborate. For those that don't know, let's rewind the tape. Tell me where you're at. Now, and I want to hear some about your background. Where is the company at today in terms of size, headcount, et cetera? Um, we're all single family homes. We're just over 1,400 doors. Um, headcount is 45, 15 virtual. Um, all in one market. All in one market in the Orlando, Central Florida market. Got it. And so just to cut to the chase in terms of the investor profile, what's the average number of properties per owner? One. One, okay. Uh, one point something. We have 1,100 owners for those 1,400 doors. Got it, okay. N- nobody over 10 doors. So this is not institutional, this is not investors. No, this is, this is accidentals and a few. And there's some other ones that are professional investors, but they don't have a large portfolios at all. How did we get here? How did you get into property management? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great story. But, um, you know, it was, I think it was just a time coming throughout my career, um, kind of coming up and where I had ended up before this was Siemens Energy. And I had a, uh, a management systems job. I was an internal auditor. I, I did a lot of coaching and teaching and getting companies up to the standards and get certified under ISO 9001. So had a lot of systems processes, management systems, but Whenever I would leave those certification events around the world, um, they would hold it up just long enough, and then the great ideas would fall apart. So I felt like my impact was was short lived. So and also being an entrepreneur at, at heart, you know, I always had side businesses, a lot of side hustles. Um, I was looking for something else. So I was actually looking to find a company that needed to get fixed. And I could have an influence because of I had a pretty strong back where it didn't really matter what it was. 
Um, my business partner um, had a business, a property management business, future business partner had a property management business that was growing. Um, but he was not a systems process. He was a sales guy. And, you know, honestly, the wheels were, were falling off. Um, and in, in, in some cases, there was a lot of growth, but there was definitely, I don't know how much longer it would have lasted. So I was coaching him at night just as a consultant, uh, free, just friend. And I would say, hey, let's do this. And I'd come back and it wouldn't quite be done. I'd, hey, do this. Hey, do this. And finally, he's in, I wasn't even considering looking into this business. And he finally said, why don't you just buy half? I said, what? You got to be kidding me. I don't know about that. You know, I have a pretty cushy corporate job. I don't mm -hmm. think this is really what I'm looking to jump into. Some conversations happened and, you know, he, he's a good salesman. He's a, you know, and he, it made sense. We had, he had an internal employee leaving, so I couldn't even justify a salary to try to even come and help, but he had an employee leaving. So I decided to take that pretty, uh, you know, entry level you know, admin job. And, uh, I took it from there and, and, uh, gave a, my life savings and I bought a property management company. And here we are today. Yeah, about half. And he's, he's still with us today. Yeah. And if you roll back even further than that, one of the taglines of the Realty Medics, <clears throat> it, you've managed to incorporate part of your previous career around being a NASA, former NASA engineer, which mm -hmm. play well, plays well in your market. You're in Florida. Tell me a little bit about that NASA tenure. What did you do there? What did that look like? Sure. Um, Central, you know, being in Central Florida, I went to, and uh, my my graduate or my undergrad was a pilot, I'm an aircraft, um, airframe and power plant mechanic, and I had a business degree. So I went up to the airlines for a bit. And then... Um, How long is a bit? Two years. What airline? Transmeridian. What were you flying? I was, I was a systems engineer on seven two seven seven five seven. So, um, I was only flying the um, ferry flights. I was not a type rated in that. I wasn't an airline pilot like Todd or something like this. But uh, systems engineer. So, um, you know, I got this job. I actually got this job. To, they hired me in the safety department, and this is right after two thousand one. This is beginning of two thousand two, and. Um, they hired me into the safety department. So I was doing badging. It was coming up with, you know, no fly lists and how to get all this stuff organized in the safety side of things. And it, it honestly was not a fit for me, but maintenance, I always was going over there and hanging out. Well, somebody left who was a systems engineer, which is pretty much holds reliability. It, it does, um, pre-planning of heavy checks. It does a lot of stuff and, and but setting up programs for it. Cause it's a startup airline. And so someone left and I talked the guy into, um, giving, giving me a chance. And I was like, why don't you take that salary and split it in two? I'll take, I'll take that job. And then I'll get, I'll get someone else from my, my school. And he said, you're telling me, I don't need a, you know, a, a, a very advanced, you know, polished guy. I was like, I can figure this out. I, this is, I have reliability. I know how to do this. And he was a good guy. He was a really influential guy. So, um, so he said, let's do this. So I went back to my university and I, and I got the smartest kid I knew in class. He was actually from, um, Switzerland and just, his name was Andy. He was just super guy came in we set up a team and we started just, we got full, 
reign of this department of bringing on 757s onto certificate. We set up reliability programs, safety programs. We did um, heavy check programs. We set up with ETOPS, um, meaning we extended twin engine operations over water. We did all this craziness as this two pretty much right out of college kids. And it was because of um, the, the manager I had. He just said, he gave us boundaries. He didn't, he didn't micromanage, he gave us opportunities. And he corrected us, he was the hardest guy. He only said, good job one time. I remember that day. But um, as that came up, um, one of the best jobs I ever had for those two years. And do heavy checks and then the pilots would let me fly back. I knew the plane inside and out and stuff. And you know, I was a multi-engine pilot, so that was cool. I was able to fly, but but without passengers. Um, so, and then the the NASA thing started to happen when I went down to visit to Florida, visit a friend, and he's like, "Hey," um, I was like, "Man, this is I like this Florida place. You know, I need, I kind of want to move back. Atlanta was not felt like home, I guess, in a way." So. And so we had a good weekend. Um, he was working at the space center as well. And I was like, I'm going to get a job here. And he's like, yeah, good luck. You know? And I said, so I made a phone call to a friend and he's like, I think I might have something. And I was like, okay. So, you know, it was tough to kind of leave, but I wasn't sure how stable that airline was going to be. Um, just it's a startup, you know? Um, and right as that was ending, I, you know, I did have some big projects. I did John Kerry's presidential campaign plane. I did all of the, livery on the outside i set up the inside worked with his campaign managers and got it you know i delivered that aircraft to him right as i was leaving so i got it i got the job um as a final inspector on the launch pad um, so i got to do everything related to the shuttle at this time so it's i worked in the o opf so I, orbital processing facilities getting the shuttle ready we we stacked the boosters we turned the or, or the vehicle vertical, we attached it, attached the pyrotechnics, rolled out the pad, hooked out the pad, um, did some final checkouts, loaded all the space station equipment, did final, again, fueled it, loaded the astronauts, and and then met saw it on. Off. Huh? So saw them yeah, off. Yeah, I, I, I was fortunate to do it one time to actually load um, uh, load a crew in um, on final, final checkout there, um, and, you know, closed the door and said, good, have a great, great flight, guys. Um, and then when it came back, I was, um, either go to Edwards and recover it, put it on the seven, four, bring it home or, or it landed Kennedy and do it again. So we did that for, um, six years. I, I was able to be pretty involved in every aspect of the space shuttle program. What was the vibe like? We talk a lot about systems and processes in our industry and right. it's kind of a aspirational, useful thing. It's clearly not life or death. What was the the ethos and the, the the culture and the environment like at NASA? The culture was it was everything was systems, process, root cause analysis. You know, everything has been done about a hundred flights at this point, so there wasn't a lot of free thinking. Um, but you know, everything had a, an exact set of processes because it had to be a hundred percent right, overly checked. You know, you know, one of the stories I sometimes tell is I was new and I was in the into the engine bay and I found a, a screw a bolt it was just sitting on the on the bottom and I was like oh look what I found and then everyone's like no and 
so I was like, what, you know, I'm picking up, you know, foreign object debris or FOD, you know, and I'm like, they're like, oh man, we got to write a root cause analysis. We have to have an engineering study. We have to find out. I'm like, well, the bolt goes right there. And they're like, that's not the point. Why did the bolt fail? Why is the bolt out? So we had to do a whole engineering analysis, root cause analysis that took like a week and a half and took like 14 people to, you know, in a normal world, you pick up the bolt and you put it back in, but it was a whole thing. And, you know, they, at the end of the day, they really couldn't figure out why. So, but, but in any case, anything that was somewhat wrong that hadn't happened yet, it's anomaly went into a crazy level of in-depth analysis. So, but systems and processes wise, we had books, we had steps, we had stamps, we had to do it by the book. And it was, um, it was challenging at times. It was not what I, I like to see what SpaceX is doing in some of those things where they're, they're, they're cowboys, not in a safe way, but they're showing NASA that you guys are behind the times, you know, you know, I think the Apollo missions and stuff were way more advanced than what shuttle was. Yeah. You, you make a great point there hearing about that bureaucracy, what Elon and Bezos and absolutely whoever else are doing is really interesting to watch. What's your take on that? What do you think all that space arms race is going to go? I think we're at a phase right now where there's a lot of folks kind of chuckling at these billionaires that are building rocket ships in a competitive fashion. It is a little, a little weird. The full fruit, whatever the fruit is, clearly hasn't come to be seen. Elon advocates for becoming a multi-planetary species. Where do you think that all that pursuit of that space arms race is going to take us i i would never bet against elon you know he is a visionary he's he's doing what he said says he's going to do and um you know i think it's very possible everything he's said so far is coming to fruition and you know the he's not going after just tourism which bezos right. and you know virgin and richard branson they that's that's 62 miles is not space space right it's it's really not. I mean, but when you launch, uh, like Inspiration Four, you know, goes to whatever it was, two hundred and fifty miles, the highest vehicle since Apollo. That's incredible. That that he's setting the the bar so high, and just changing the way we think about it. And he's still making money at it, and he's making space so much more accessible. So, you know, going to the moon, going to Mars in the next ten years or something like that. I don't think it's out of the question for sure. But just the way he has transformed that 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 whole industry is it's fascinating, just like the cars. <laughs> he talks a lot about first principles, reasoning by first principles, meaning what is possible based mm -hmm. on how the universe was made, as opposed to reasoning by analogy, i.e. what's been done before. What was your biggest enduring takeaway from your time at NASA? What really stuck with you and you feel like is still kind of influencing how you operate today? Great question. Um, you know, the thing about it was, it was a fascinating job, but it was, it was so restrictive and it was, it was not able to free think. There was not able to say, I think this is a better way of doing it. So they taught a lot of things of a lot of systems and overall knowledge, but, but just to be able to be micromanaged and be able to say, you don't have this, this is a better way of doing it, but we're not going to do that. That, that corporate kind of a, look which spacex is completely blown out of mm -hmm. so i think that was the takeaway is it's 
is not the best because we've done it this way before. There's other ways and we got to evolve and the space industry didn't do that for a long time. So So in terms of the other things that you did between your ending corporate gig at Siemens and the beginning of Realty Medics, do you have any other any other stints, any other side hustles <laughs> in the mix there? Yeah. Um, you know, since since I wasn't fully engaged mentally at these at the job. You were phoning it in a bit? Yeah. I mean, there'd be yeah, there there were slow times it's at, at at the space center. So I did go off and get a couple graduate degrees and I also like to stay fairly mentally engaged. So what I did was I I did start a a side business, um, which started with eBay and, um, you know, I was, I was trying Amazon returns. I was trying iPods. Um, and, and what I, what I mean by trying is I would find a guy who's got, got them in wholesale or I'd find an Amazon contract and I'd buy all the returns and some of it's broken. And then you buy, you buy it at a discount and then you can either fix it and resell it or, you know, and that's how you make hopefully your spread. So it's a it's a huge gamble and risk. Well, I then went in. That was a little bit. The Amazon stuff didn't work out so well, and I ended up with a bunch of home goods that is really hard to sell. That you know later on when I met my wife, she opens up my garage and sees Why all these bed all sheets and random pans and stuff. I'm like, what the <laughs> heck? So, so but so that kind of wasn't a great um, money making venture. And then that kind of moved into iPods and Xboxes. So I'd fixed the uh, um, Xbox 360, three, um, Red Ring of Death. Red Ring of Death. And so I started buying pallets of that. Well, as I'm doing this, I'm, I'm only making like 10% or something like that. So pretty small margins and I'm putting up a credit card as well. Before you know it, I've lost um, I, I, this $18,000 was out. Um, the lady filed bankruptcy, didn't get her shipment or something, and I'm out. So I buy it, keep on going, Xbox, same thing happens. So before you know it, I'm out about $70,000. Wow, on a side hustle. On a side hustle. Well, that's going in the wrong direction. It's terrible. Yeah. It's, how did, how did you, you must have felt a bit nauseous about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, and it, it towards the end of that, I did know I was being taken advantage of it. And um, I knew I was, I was had, but I was like, I can't let these guys go down. So... Um, just, you know, I started recording it and, and taping conversations and all this stuff. And before you know it, you know, I, I get a knock on the door and, you know, um, my roommates answer and they're like, uh, FBI is, has been here. I'm like, oh no, you know, what, what's going on? But it was actually in reference to this case because I had turned in a lot of information to go after these guys and they did end up going to trial, but they, you know, got probation and a bunch of stuff. And they said, what, they what was no their money. scam? Uh, they, they took my money and did not Didn't deliver the, the goods. Yeah. And they kept on say, Oh, it's coming in here. It's coming in there. And it didn't, didn't quite happen. Oh, wow. Um, it's, there's a long history there, but it's not the, the best of stories other than, you know, I, I was in a bad spot. I had two maxed out credit cards and, and, and part of that money also was in real estate rentals. And I'd, I'd leveraged those rentals and we're, we're running into 2006 oh. at this point, 2007. Oh boy. So we're about, we're about to crash. But so with this last credit card I had, I was like, this guy goes, Hey man, I got this PSP battery and memory sticks called the Pandora battery and a magic memory stick. I was like, what is that? You know, I'm not a gamer. Um, and he goes, well, this is for, um, 
you know, for jailbreaking, a jailbreaking means, you know, just allow open making your PSP open source software so you can load it uh, games that you download off the internet, you know, onto your memory stick and let it play. You so this is for a PlayStation. Yeah, PlayStation Portable PSP. Got it. Um, just like the phone was hacked or jailbroken in that yeah, past, iPhone, the right. iPhones and stuff. So you could do whatever you wanted to and outside of Apple's control. So, so I was like, okay, I guess this is a thing. So I, um, so I, I, I went to eBay and I said, hey, can I can I sell this product? You know, first of all, oh, and oh, I got a sample. He sent me like ten batteries, and I made like thirty bucks a a pop. I was like, that's pretty good. You know, I didn't do much. I made 30 bucks on each one. And so then I asked eBay for permission to be able to sell this. And they said, yep, no problem. They were putting writing for me. I was a power seller and things like that. And then I said, all right, 30,000, this is it. And I, they sent it to me. I got the product. I'm like, all right, perfect. So I uh, listed uh, internationally, uh, listed everywhere, these Pandora batteries. On, there's lots of different eBay sites for each country around the world. So I, I list them everywhere. I was going to do international shipping. So I did that and I jump on a plane. I go to Mexico with my family. And um, my future wife also came. Um, and she had no idea about any of this, by the way. So um, at least about the debt. We weren't you know, talking about that yet. And, uh, so I, I land in Mexico and I go to, you know, found the internet cafe and I jump on and it says, um, banned, you know, your eBay account's been closed. I'm like, what? So long story short is, yeah, they, they shut me down because I was selling unlicensed software, even though I had a letter, but they said, oh, we made a mistake because you can't do it. So now I have $30,000 in product, maxed out credit cards and I have no way of selling them. So I said, well, I guess I have to write a website. And, you know, back in those days, it was, it was, it was not super hard, but I didn't know how to write a website, but I figured so, it so out. So you didn't flinch. You just immediately pivoted to assuming you had to uh, offload it, it was, somehow. Uh, yeah. After, yeah. After, <laughs> there was no other option. I have a good job, but I'm a, I can't go bankrupt at, at that age, you know, and I had to find a way. So wrote a, wrote a website and, uh, Got it listed on Google, uh, got some links, put a forum behind it, started to, and I, I said, oh, I'm going to see if this works. And, you know, hooked up the little bell that even like, you know, um, Netflix and all them, you know, the little ding, ding. So I set it up and ding. I'm like, oh, got one. And, you know, after it took a couple of days and then ding, ding, ding. I'm like, holy smokes, I'm selling a couple. This is amazing. Um, and then you know, to be efficient, I had to set up the whole shipping process and stuff because it took time to, you know, shipping label, packing label, instructions and stuff like that. So I, I wrote the back inside of things. And next thing you know, it's going bing, 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 bing. And it's going fast. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Selling, you know, hundreds of orders a day. Um, so then I realized I'm getting really close to the end of your supply, the supply which is a good thing and a bad thing. I'm about to pay off half of my debt, but not all of it. So I've, you know, but I've, I'm like, okay, well I have to go to China and I have to get some more of these batteries made because I think I got something here. So I, I did that. Found a guy named Sean. <laughs> it definitely wasn't Sean, but, um, and I went to the factory and we got a custom made Pandora battery and a Pandora battery, which is, is, it, the PSP starts up like a computer and it has a BIOS 
and you're, you know, when you start a computer, it checks to see if it's going to boot from the hard drive, you know, the DVD or whatever. The, so a PSP will start up by checking the serial number on the battery. If it's all zeros, it will boot from the, uh, from the memory stick. If not, it'll boot from the DVD player. So it's important for later. Okay. So, um, so anyways, I, I get all these batteries. They start coming in. I, I have four different models now, extended life and stuff. But before you know it, I have competitors popping up selling my battery against me because the factory is overselling these and putting them on Alibaba and all these other spots. So now I have massive competition and, and the price is getting stepped down. I was making 40, now I'm 30. I'm like, this can't be right. So one of my good friends says, why don't you set up a couple of their competing websites and uh, compete against yourself, compete yourself. But, but give bad service or something like that? I'm like, that's a great idea. So I, I created two other subsites that were less. I gave bad customer service. I shipped slow, and I and I didn't care about my ratings. But I would advertise, and I would start stepping the price down. And my competitors only cared about price. But I kept the flagship Pandora sales with good reviews, a high functioning forum, <laughs> and and like a really good level. So I didn't I didn't discount. Oh my and goodness. so I pushed everyone to that and I had a lot of sub, sub forums and stuff like that saying, now buy it from this guy. He has legit stuff. And then the other sites, I'm just like never shipping. They're all mad and everyone's talking. But before you know it, I put all, all my competition out of business wow. by stepping the price down to what I knew was the cost. And so I was like, huh, look at that. It worked, you know? So I'm trying to wrap this story up. It's a story, but so at this time, 2008's happened. I have let my, I've made my money back, but I have not able to recover the money I lost out of the the houses. Right. I've short sold them. So this guy is walking up with the what I think is foreclosure paperwork to me, and and he hands it to me. I was like, oh man, I've been waiting for you, you know, knowing I was short selling my house. And he goes, not many people are waiting to be sued by Sony Entertainment of America. And I said, I'm sorry what and he goes you've been served and he walks away and i'm like what? am i getting punked what's happening here and uh i look at it i still have the documents on my desk but it was it was pandora sales benjamin sensenbaugh versus um sony entertainment of america so i was super scared say the least right so i i hire a uh, pretty young lawyer um I said, listen, we got to prove that there's a design flaw and that zeros is, I didn't hack. I used what they gave to go, because this is how they fix their computers. I don't have any downloading. I don't sell anything that's illegal, anything. And, you know, I, we, we, we did go to trial, but they settled outside of court and they gave me a license to sell the rest of the Pandora batteries for the first model and the second model, but I could never sell anything against a Sony product again. So... I somehow beat Sony and uh, that nest egg there helped pay for the property management company. Wow. So you got out alive without... Got out alive. And and net. Where did you wind up like net on that whole thing? Where did, did you wind up at break even ahead behind? Oh, no, way, way up. Way ahead. We, we shipped 60,000 batteries. 60,000 batteries? 60,000 batteries. You physically mailed 60,000 All my friends batteries. worked... For, for us, shipping batteries, making memory sticks. Um, it was, I had a phone line operator making 20 bucks an hour. Yeah, it was the whole thing on the side. 
how long did that go on for? What was that window? Five, four years, five years. Wow. Until until it got down to where it wasn't, you know. Just the demand. The, the d- demand. Well, yeah, I knew the 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 company was going to end because the license ended with this. They've already at the PSP three thousand. Patched it. Yeah, the the rest, and I could I knew I couldn't go after that product, so <laughs> I had to put it to bed. Wow. Okay. So. so so this winds up. You're working at Siemens at the time when this winds down. Yes. And that takes us to your buy into the Realty Medics. Correct. And your journey of building that business. You mentioned that it was it was fairly dysfunctional at the outset when you took it over. It was, yeah. There wasn't a lot of polish. You come in as this systems guy, this processes guy. What did you where did you start? You know, your natural bent of optimization when everything is broken, where do you where do you start? You try to understand what you have in front of you and the baseline. The baseline. What is what is property management? What are we trying to accomplish and you know, what is required, where we waste an effort and stuff like that. But, you know, when you don't know it very well and the team doesn't know it very well, you definitely have to look outside and look into NARPM, you know, and, and start asking questions. You know, I I could see how the basic flow should go. You know, I was able to write out a good, you know, workflow of how I thought leasing should work or onboarding should work or maintenance work orders should work, what I thought. And then I had to bounce that off of like people have been doing this for a while. So um, I remember talking to Brian Birdie, um, one of the first pers- people I ever met, um, which was a great first person mm, to meet, totally. by the way. And uh, he he was an open book. He said, well, this is the way I do. This is how I structure this. And I said, interesting. So I just started asking questions. I started doing massive case studies on competitors renters warehouse everybody i knew their company almost as well as they did just from what they had on the out uh, mm-hmm. you know websites podcasts i grabbed all the info and until i could find okay this is how i want to structure it i got to fix all the accounting the you know a folio was a disaster they didn't realize it was a disaster but it was a disaster so it took a few years to fix that but then once got the plan rolling it started to make sense up until four or five hundred doors yeah Bryn here from Lead Simple. I love Lead Simple, but that feels like a given. Instead of telling you why I love it, here's Sarah Hatch from Hatch Property Management. We're very happy and I recommend so many people to Lead Simple because I'm like, oh my gosh, it changed our world. <laughs> it totally changed our whole way of uh, managing properties and staying in contact. It's the best business investment I've ever made. To learn more and connect with one of my teammates, go to leadsimple.com slash podcast today. So you and I, when we met, you were probably managing, well, how many doors did the business have when you bought in? 200. 200. Okay. So you were probably managing around 300 or so when we met somewhere around there. One thing I've observed about you is that you've been persistent in upskilling and investing in the business holistically rather than just indulging yourself exclusively with systems. Mm -hmm. A common theme of the conversation that I have for folks that are adopting technology is you can't just go out there and look at the folks that are putting on seminars and webinars and take everything they're doing at face value. The reality is that most people talking about systems enjoy systems and processes and technology. The people talking about sales marketing enjoy sales marketing. You have that since systems bent 
but you've been willing to flex and learn and grow in other aspects of the business like sales and marketing. You're known as being kind of a systems guy. Love to get on that on, on the back half here, but on the growth side, on the side that maybe is has been more of a learned behavior, mm-hmm. I don't experience you as this like highly charismatic sales guy that's just naturally going to beat down the door, you know, own BNI, et cetera. Mm-hmm. What did your journey look like to lean into the sales and marketing? What skills did you have to master? What was the learning curve? What were kind of the milestones like? Wow. Um, you know, it was, I always felt like we could grow fast. Um, but you know, you had to have a, you had to have a good foundation. So I felt like we always kept sales and marketing at bay, but, um, so, you know, it was, it was, we really went after the relationships and the investor groups, um, is how we started working on sales and marketing and really listening to the, the, the voice of the customer and, um, I guess we were just kind of in tuned with um, what they wanted. We priced things competitively, but not the cheapest. You know, we always was a goal when we when they called was just to give them not a reason to say no. You know, we and in those days it wasn't super competitive to grab some of these doors. It was from these other companies who were just, hey, we pick up our phone. You know, hey, we guarantee you a call back in the same day. Hey, we'll do a lot of the stuff that. Um, you know, the other property managers might've been struggling with. So we, we started to get a lot of transfer of doors. We started working. Um, we started really doing a lot of the, on selling rehabbed homes. We, we pitched that and we found a lot of success early on. So we were marketing from a unconventional way. We didn't really have what we have now, Mm -hmm. you know, a marketing team, but we were finding ways to add doors in a, in what they kind of wanted at that time which eventually evolved into a full scale marketing thing that, you know, just, just again, taking, taking advantage of opportunities, um, that were presented or trying, trying anything to find what's going to stick. And I think that's what we eventually moved into. Um, so I don't know. Some guerrilla warfare early on. Yeah. It was guerrilla warfare. Yeah. Just we're taking what other people weren't doing good at. We're, we're taking that low hanging fruit as well as selling to California. And so we, we did a lot of growth through California. We went out there, we sat through the syndication. We we weren't a syndicate, but they were buying with syndication money and we were providing, you know, I started an inspection company because we can inspect faster. Uh, We, we started a rehab company because we could rehab faster. We, we did a lot of things to, keep the ball moving and keep that core competency in here in house and not have to rely on a lot of people so we could get things done very smoothly. Um, and then throughout this time, this is right about when we, when I met you is, you know, we were getting sales phone calls, but I only could organize my inbox so well. And that's when I Googled, you know, Salesforce for property management, found lead simple. And then that's when I, transitioned to having really my first BDM who is still the same BDM today, but he took him out of property management and said, you need to focus on growth. You need to focus on marketing. This is where everything's going to be. Mm-hmm. So we made that transition and that investment early on to say, if that phone ever rings, we're going to answer it. Mm-hmm. We're going to, we're going to give a pitch, whatever we thought that pitch should be, mm-hmm. which changed over time. We learned a lot through a lot of 
people we know. Mm -hmm. But uh, that was the thing. We always had a dedicated line. We had to always call them back and we tried and tried and um, just followed up on getting that closed deal. What were some of the key insights and lessons and how did your identity shift as an entrepreneur in terms of what you needed to learn on the sales and marketing side along the way of this kind of growth journey? So I realized, you know, we were getting to the end point where, you know, we, we were doing a good job of answering the phone and following a sales process, but we were lacking that knowledge of what, how to take it to the next level. We, we started to dabble in radio and radio is a very difficult and expensive thing if you don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So we did a little bit of this, but, you know, um, as I mentioned before, I did a lot of case studies and renters warehouse, and I was looking at their radio side of things. And you actually interviewed Pam Kosanke and, uh, I had studied and knew who she was. And, um, you know, shortly after your podcast, she, she left. And she became a free agent. She became a free agent from Renters Warehouse. And I was like, I need her. She grew a company. She did the dollar menu for McDonald's. She, she is, you know, uh, just she the got top, it. top of the game. And, uh, and I was like, so I, I knew my, my knowledge and my ideas and stuff were, were getting to the end of just from what I knew from a Siemens mm -hmm. and just a marketing standpoint. So I needed someone to step up the game. And so I did contact Pam. Um, she was a little resistant at first because I was holding back of really what we wanted to accomplish. But as soon as I said, I knew my numbers, I knew my metrics, I knew how to do radio, I knew this. And she's like, I'll come down and visit you. And she comes down and she goes, well, what's your marketing message? What is what, what is your brand? What's, what's your brand equity? What's all this stuff? I'm like, I don't know. You know, I have no idea what you're even asking me. Uh, I mean, to, really, I didn't. And she goes, well, we got to start with a brand map. We got to, we need to set up what your standard messaging and things are. So, so Pam was a huge influence in setting up who we are mm. so that we all could say, you know, the Realty Medics is, is this type of property manager. You know, we're engineering, a, um, property management, peace of mind. We, 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 we had to have that standardized messaging and ideas to get us to the next level. So. Pam was a huge influence in that over the next couple of years and brought a lot of ideas to the table that we executed pretty, pretty well. I love that you actually had the wherewithal to make that lift. A lot of folks would have looked at that and been like, it's just too big of a lift to go from nothing to radio. There, there's not a lot of great analogs with certain mediums and radio is one of them. Yes, you do have Renner's Warehouse that historically has done a lot of radio. It's less popular now than it was in the past, but there's not a lot of management shop. I can't think of any management shops out other than you outside of that that are effectively using radio. What was your experience like with radio? I'm sure you bumped your head along a couple of different things along the ways. For those that are, for those that are curious, what is like the quick cliff notes on what, uh, what it takes to actually make that work it takes a, a strong strong stomach i mean you have to you know you have to have a good message you know make sure and a message i believe you have to have an endorser you have to have a radio personality that is local to the talent who is actually backing you and not just doing produce spots you know that's there was a big difference between the two 
And, you know, you have to be able to measure something along the way. You can't just hope, you know, that some your lead flow is going to go up or, you know, you're never going to know that they all came from radio. Mm-hmm. But you should see a general shift in your lead inflow and understand your cost per leads. And, you know, you've you got to always keep your, your customer acquisition cost in line. But radio is is a risky play. It's not going to work in every market. And you got to really understand who you think your client is. You know, what's the demographics? A lot of us property managers don't know. We just mail a 1099 to somebody who has, you know, some name and we know maybe what state we're mailing it to and what city. But that's about all. We don't necessarily know what their income is or know what their age is or any of that. So, you know, we later on did some some surveys and stuff and kind of got a little bit closer to the solidification of that. But yeah, you're totally guessing. You, everyone's going to, I don't know if everyone, but 45 to 65 makes 150,000 owns more than one house. You know, that's my, so that will put you into a radio channel that or station that is going to fit that model that's affordable to you. You know, you're not going to go after the pop and the millennials. You're going to go after the guy, you know, the 80s and the conservative talk radio, things like that. But at least that's what we were also matching through Renters Warehouse. We're watching them. And what, what kind of spend volume in your market in Orlando? What's the average monthly spend volume to even be in the game? Um, we were spending about six to $8,000 per station. So we were, um, we were pushing, in, in the key months, we were pushing 20000 a month in radio. So, but we were on this radio for about seven months. And we ramp up, we peak, and then we slowly ramp back down. And we also try to identify which stations are working the best for and us. And you're saying just the seasonal nature of it? Yeah. For, for Orlando, we're, we're seasonal for the most part. Um, you, know, the, you know, November... It, it, we're we're slowing down going into the holidays. January and February are super slow for us, just in in unit turns and also in just door count unless they're buying, and that's a different thing. So, um, and then it's slowly, you know, it's a bell curve through the summer for us. Uh, peaks in July, August falls down, falls back down. So we're we've chose to be on radio just part part of the year instead of being having a presence year long, year round. Um, and that, you know, we did it for three years. Uh, this year is the first year we took off, but, um, I, I felt like we had pretty good success. We had a lot of name brand recognition. I think there's still a lot more to go. I mean, and there's a lot other competition coming into play. Sure. Of course, market's you, constantly evolving. Yeah. From radio might not be the only play anymore. There's so many more digital options out there than terrestrial radio. And also, you're only hitting your probably most likely your accidental landlord or the local landlords. You're not going to hit the um, professional investors who sit in another state or country. So let's talk about the operations team that you have that is supporting these this growth and the mm-hmm. 1,400 doors behind them. In terms of the way that you have the company structured, management philosophy, do you guys operate off of EOS? We do, yeah. All right. So what does your leadership team look like? Leadership team is, uh, there's six of us. Um, so we, we, we have our integrator and then we have a a leasing manager, a director of property management operations, which is over property managers and maintenance. Um, we have property management sales or just real estate sales. Mm -hmm. And then we have marketing and sales on our team. You have a fairly young team, correct? Yeah. Um, median age ballpark. Um, the, 
of the staff or the staff yeah the staff is it's mid to upper 20s mid to upper 20s okay so let's talk about that okay. that's interesting and i think that's probably reflective of how the company is engineered we talked about your background nasa mm -hmm. systems processes what i make up is that the way that you have the company built in terms of your infrastructure and those systems gives you the luxury of hiring from a different labor profile than let's say, for example, if you had none of that and you just needed raw skill and know-how mm -hmm. and they just kind of figured it out because they'd all been doing it for, for 30 or 40 years. Talk to me about how your systems and processes impact the pool that you hire from. So the systems and processes make it so that, you know, memory and experience is not as important as just being able to think freely and to critically think on problems. So what that really means is we're hi we are hiring straight out of college or 18, 19 year olds. And I was training them or we were training them to, to pretty much l learn the job in front of them in a week, week and a half, and then develop them over the next however many years. Um, but the being able to sit in on our on our tech stack is you know what you're supposed to do. It's pretty it's pretty darn easy. Now you're going to get things that are outside of scope, but that's where you critically think. You raise your hand, you work with the team, and we'll get you an answer. But but there's not a lot of back end knowledge. You know, if this person's gone tomorrow, a person can step in and sit at that desk and know exactly what happened. You know, a, a property manager they leave the company, it's, they're not taking all the knowledge with them. The knowledge stays in the tech stack. Mm -hmm. You know, as you grow, you become a better leader. You become a better uh, uh, situational thinker. And that's what we work on developing throughout the, the teams. You know, um, you pick out the, the high potential people who you might have been an intern and you said, okay, you know, this person is, is a high potential. I know this and I, I need to take the time to develop them into being a great leader over time, get them to think in a certain way, in an agreeable way, you know, on how to handle situations, how to, how to, you know, manage people, how to, how to respond to, you know, upset clients and stuff. There's, there's a lot of soft skills that are taught that over time are important. Um, but doing the actual job is not that hard. It's property management. As long as you take away the problems, it's not that hard. And, and I think a lot of the tech helps take away a lot of the problems. What do you think is hard about property, property management? When you talk to folks that are kind of in this cycle of bitching and you can just tell it's really yeah. hard for them, what, what, exact, what do you think it is makes it so hard for some folks? You got to get in front of, front of the problems, in front of the the bitching, I guess, from the tenants or the owners or whatever, and find out what that, what that root cause is. And, you know, from the person, from a maintenance work order, you know, always informing them like on a daily basis what the status is instead of them going, I haven't heard from you in a week, you know, uh, giving them updates. It might not be daily. Maybe it's every 48 hours or same with estimates or leases or, you know, Hey, my property has been on the market for 24 days. You haven't done it. No, that's, you know, we don't work that way. We give live updates every, we, we email out and we keep everyone in tune. So, and where problems happen is where we focus our time to ensure 
try to ensure that that doesn't happen now you know late rents stuff like that well we got to find out why you know is it because we place the wrong tenants so we look at things in a very systematic way to try to eliminate those mistakes so that the job is significantly easier if you can take it away i know that sounds crazy but you don't hear our phones ringing you don't hear very many tenants really matter and owners are leaving and stuff at our offices so that's that's meaningful that's a point of nuance you could have come up with better ways for dealing with the same problems you're saying that the approach that you engineered is actually resulting in a lower number of incidences of problems to be solved in the first place yeah yeah in 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 a lot of different ways even even from a maintenance standpoint you know did we miss anything on unit turns that we should be fixing earlier on or you know do we have reoccurring anything and then why why did that happen you know can we can we engage in a better vendor or better check of something that does fail like an HVAC or, you know, changing filters or whatever, whatever it is, we try to get ahead of that. So we can, um, again, slow the, the role on that. And, um, so yeah, we stay, try to stay ahead of it. So philosophically to make this accessible to those listening at home, what does this look like? Is this root cause analysis? What is the kind of the principles based thinking? What is the high level approach of how to begin down this path? We took a look at where the time was being spent, I think is where we, what we really looked at was, you know, where are the wheels spinning instead of moving forward and why? Um, so is that because you're dealing with, you know, HOA violations? Is that because you're dealing with home warranties? Is it because you're dealing with, you know, people who didn't understand what they just applied for and now they're complaining? You know, we had to really understand those kind of situations and kind of get a get an understanding of where yeah where the problems where the time's being spent instead of you know renew this lease do this do this Mm -hmm. do this well they're like i can't i'm on the phone all day well you know it comes a why question why are you on the phone all day you know and it's the five whys you're going back into root cause analysis to take away the, the yeah focus on the job not the problems and we try to get rid of the problems at some point you're not going to get rid of all of them, but maybe you can have a specialty person, especially when you get to scale. You know, we have a person that is only looking at high priority or things that take longer in maintenance. That's its only job is to take, you know, builder complaints and water problems or um, HVAC or a sewage problem, you know, where they might be on hold with somebody forever and they can't process the other 20 work orders that came in the day. Well, this person can, and they're, and they're providing a, a service that is appreciated and the, on the, to the tenant, the resident, to the owners, you know, they're, we're ensuring that things don't fall through the crack, but there's always going to be somebody, a, a slowdown, a bottleneck somewhere. And we try to f- either eliminate it or have a, a, a focused person on that so that the rest of the, there are no slowdowns. The, it, it, it's very fluid. So. Talk to me about the technology side. I'm always so interested in translating an experience like yours, Mm -hmm. somebody that's both systems and process oriented and also has a technology background and therefore has kind of a wow outcome in that arena. I'm always interested in translating that to the everyman. How do we make this accessible? What kind of disclosure 
is required to describe the amount of investment that went into building kind of the machine that you have. If you were advising your average property manager that's working hard, well-intentioned, wants to do right by their customer, wants to utilize technology and best practices, where do they, where do they start? What's, what's kind of the framework or the rubric mm-hmm. that you would encourage them to apply, to evaluate and grade the choices that are available to them? You got to understand your process. It has to be documented. It has to, you have to be very clear that that is what you, is how you actually do business, not how you want to do business. The baseline. Truly know the baseline. Yeah. You have to, for every single thing that happens on a normal frequency, this is how we do business. Um, And then to turn that into a tech is, 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 is not a normal thing, but but to use a lead simple product and the workflow management and things like that and, and, and working together, I think that's a better solution than doing something that, you know, custom solutions and stuff, because that, that was, that was a long, long process that takes forever. And it was a big investment. So, but I think what's in sometimes there's nothing at the end of it. Right. Right. I think what's interesting is like you got over the hump. It's really interesting seeing folks fail after spending 100k plus on it of course there's this logical fallacy that like if i spend more money i'm more likely to get a positive outcome i don't see that correlation yeah no i don't i don't think it's a money thing it's it's a commitment thing it's a buy-in thing from your staff you know it's giving them a lot of um for us it it was give them a lot of freedom in help developing how the tech is going to work for them Mm. and then they can now come up with ideas and making it stronger you know, and, and better. So every time we have better ideas or someone leaves, we have a new person and they're like, Oh, why didn't you do it? I'm like, Oh, that's something we can bring up, you know, but it's, but to get the buy-in from the staff and not, we don't want to just check boxes. We don't want to have checklists that don't make sense. We don't want to have ever have double work. We want to have a product that actually helps them. And, and, and when we're developing those things, we got just got to ask the staff, what's the best way of doing this? And they're like, I want to do it this way. And I was like, well, this make your job easier. And yes, you know, and great. Um, why do you have seven post-it notes on your monitor? You know, that's a question I would always ask. Well, this reminds me of this. I'm like, okay, well, the tech stack's not working if you have post-it notes. So tell me why you feel like you have to have that. Well, it's for me. I'm like, then you haven't bought in yet. Mm. And tell me what I'm missing in the tech stack and I'll add that. Or we have to relearn why you feel that way. And, and I hear what I hear there is sincere inquiry rather than guilt trip to enforce compliance. Oh, yeah. Because that can either be like, tell me why you're not doing this way. Or it can be like, hey, tell me why. I want to learn. Yeah. I, as the system architect, I'm going to take responsibility for the outcome. So there's no bad. You just tell me what your motivations are and we'll work through it. And obviously you could have a situation where it's not the right person on the bus, but I think that's a really honest, open-handed way to approach the conversation. Yeah. It, it's, it's getting complete buy-in. They have a, they have a say. And, and then yeah, there should be no double work. This should be something that they are saying, you know what? This is a great idea. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, all right, let's go with it then, you know? And, and then does the next person feel the same way, you know, because everyone thinks differently. And so you, if you get a little bit of camaraderie between two account managers or two leasing managers, they're like, you know what? That is, I don't have to remember anything now. I'm like, oh, great. 
now just give that loving smile through that phone and, you know, sell that house. And they can focus more on the, on the soft skills instead of how much was this for or what's my next step? And, you know, it's not just pushing buttons. This is just so you can focus your mind on what you're really good at. Um, that has been huge. But, yeah, it's, it's really cool to watch our team come up with ideas and stuff that we still add. You know, we have a, we have a laundry list of stuff we still want to do. But it's it's it takes it takes some time, but they have buy-in. They 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 think freely, and they we I try to accommodate as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Ben, there's this really interesting interplay for entrepreneurs, where on the one hand you want a stable business that's just a self-managing, self-perpetuating, mm-hmm. self-growing, and on the other hand. At least for myself, I demonstrate a lot of behaviors that are the complete opposite. Like I keep breaking things, changing things, adding new aspiration that effectively moves the goalposts, et cetera. You've gotten to the point now where you have something stable and growing. It's a pretty, pretty awesome opportunity. We've had a lot of conversations about return on invested capital. The way that Warren Buffett puts this is there's an institutional imperative for every organization to perpetuate itself, to mm-hmm. get bigger, to suck up more resources. You optimize, you improve it, you tweak it. One of the things that's interesting about investment real estate is that it doesn't command, it's not the same black hole of time and attention. You can rehab a house, you list it, you rent it. And then you're kind of done, right? Like management isn't this 24 hour seven sort of thing. What have you done on the, the real estate investment side? And, and how do you relate to that opportunity in light of that dynamic that it's not this, this constant black hole for effort and optimization and you get that in your nine to five. Tell me about how you think about pursuing the two separate opportunities, knowing that, um, I know you're thinking about return on on invested capital. How do you navigate thinking about where to apportion your time and effort? Well, the return on invested capital so is a is a thing that I've always kind of dabbled in and um and and thought about. So early on, it was buying homes, you know, that were being foreclosed on and things like that with with the with with the extra funds, and then. And then what, but as I was buying rental homes and they're in terrible shape, we get them in great shape and I would, I would keep in my personal portfolio. I, I realized that the cost was coming to almost even what I could do a new build for what I thought I could do a new build for. So, um, I had recently built my, my forever house and I brought my builder who built my custom house out to a lot out in the North Orlando area there. And I said, Hey, I want to build a 1450 square foot house right here. And he's like, looks at me. He's like, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? He's built my house. He's like, I, I was like, just smaller. <laughs> and he's like, huh? So you, what do you want to do again? I was like, I want to build a house. that's 14, a three, two, two car garage, 1450 square feet. And I want to work with you on, on putting the teams together to ensure I can get my cost right. But I want to build a small house and I want to rent it and I want to keep it. He's like, okay, are you sure? I was like, yeah. I was like, okay. So I bought, I, I, um, I mortgaged the three rentals, my first three rentals and I got them up to 80%. I took the cash out of that and mortgaged my house and I went out and bought, um, 
20 some lots in this in this area and uh spot lots spot lots yeah so they already had uh water but they were septic uh, spot lots on established in a subdivision yeah 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 so it's not like a, a dr horton subdivision okay. but you know there'd be a house three empty lot three wooded lots a house so it was it was more these communities were not the roads were planned but the the houses were never planned mm -hmm. so the infrastructure was there but not that so it happens quite a bit in the rural areas and things like that so we uh we built the first one and uh, you know we worked together really closely on on pricing and you know into fixtures and stuff and we we hit the number and uh, he's like okay that wasn't so bad so then we started doing four at a time and that continued on so the the goal was is to buy the lot in cash and then refinance out the uh construction costs so if you know let's just use e even numbers but easy math Yep. Uh, let's say the construction costs are one hundred fifty thousand. I'm I'm going to expect the appraisal to come in at two hundred thousand. <clears> so I'm going to be able to get my seventy five percent LTV loan and get that one hundred fifty thousand dollars of construction costs back out, and then I get my money back, and I'm going to go and roll it into the next one. So, so that's that was the model of the build the rent um, that has been very successful in what I've done in my on my side on the, the new side business i guess you could say all right and so so working capital because i think this is what's interesting mm -hmm. you didn't do a huge raise to get started like you said you used your personal home builder to build one house and go from there what was the the working capital what did that that look like to actually get this off the ground well i refinanced my my houses to give me a couple hundred thousand bucks and i bought those lots and then um Early on, we had raised like a half million dollars that we paid a percentage on, nine or ten percent. And um, so we did. I did have that money that I had used to flip homes and stuff like that throughout the years. So I, I was I finished a project. So I took that money and used that for construction money. So I didn't get a construction loan. I used that money and I, I was just recycling it. So I'm paying a percentage on that money. Um, so I didn't have to raise any capital in actually what I was doing, um, up, up through the, the first set of builds I did. Um, the next round I, I partnered with, um, a, a couple of, of, of my close friends, um, one who had sold his business recently, but we put in money to go buy a whole bunch of lots and, um, and he is going to do the construction financing. So we didn't have to raise again, any capital. We were just 33% partners, same builders, and we're just doing it all again to keep it. And what's some of the inside baseball of what somebody wouldn't know about pulling this off? We're obviously taking, talking about a lot of effort and mm -hmm. kind of truncating and distilling it into yeah. a small story here. What are the, the skill sets? And I think about the parallel of like turnkey, why don't more people do turnkey it and ostensibly it makes so much sense it speaks to the deepest felt need which is real wealth creation through real estate rather than we fix broken toilets right, right. I mean, if you can if you can pitch the former rather than the latter you're so much better off turnkey aligns with that and yet people don't 
required skills would be the financing piece, the construction piece, the management piece. Most people that do turnkey only know how to do one of three, and therefore it can get pretty messy pretty quick. What were the constituent required skill sets to do this, and which did you already have because of your experience in property management? I kind of felt like, you know, the the financial key was to make sure the numbers were work. So I felt like I had that key. I had the money. So I didn't have the construction side of it, like a new construction piece of it. So that and 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 to develop that team. So that's that's where the effort was. You can't if you go out and ask for a builder to build a house, he's not going to build it for the prices that I need it to be done. You have to develop that team and that builder might be experienced, but you got to show them either volume or you have to have a relationship. So I, f I feel like the builder and I, um, we went in on it as a team and uh, he bought in as well. So he was actually started buying lots next to mine and building the same thing. So I think that was the key component of this is we, we have another builder that we also developed as well, who was starting off so that, yeah, you got to get that build team together. And it's not that easy to find a builder who's willing to work on a flat rate. They all want, they want the sale. They want the, they want to keep that, right. that extra profit. And, but if you can do it as a team or offer some incentive back to them, you know, and I think you have a much better chance, but that was the hardest part for sure. And what size of um, scale are you d doing this at now? How many, if you do a round of building homes, what's the increment? Um, we, we're building, uh, 10 every three months or so. Um, that's, that's the, that's the goal. It's, it's probably, it's four months, I guess, three and a half by the time we're done, 100, 110 day builds. Um, we're doing that three times, four times a year. Now, how has this changed since you started doing it? I mean, you obviously weren't the only person that had this idea. There's been, frankly, an insane amount of money that mm -hmm. has been sunk and committed capital in the build to rent premise mm -hmm. in your market, what have you seen in terms of how things have shifted? Um, there is definitely competition for sure. So, you know, we're, we're not selling, we're keeping in a long-term portfolio, but, but there's a lot of other builders in the, in the same market. And so we're actually selling those, those builds to our clients right alongside of us. So the build to rent model is, is, it's working, I guess. There's a lot of opportunity, at least in Central Florida, of new construction homes that, you know, we're getting closer. Every time I say think we're getting close to that top end number of it not cash flowing, the rents will bump up and be like, okay. But it's it's getting more and more expensive, but the rents are chasing it. But we're gonna get close here to be able to say this doesn't work anymore. I know in many markets in the US, there's no this is definitely not gonna work. But um, in, in central Florida, you know, you go an hour or so outside of Orlando, there are opportunities, there are growth areas for sure happening, especially new construction. And you do see the institution guys even next to us um, building and keeping, you know, Progress Residential, Second Avenue, all these guys are right next to us keeping rentals. Um, some of them are doing exactly what I mentioned is spot lots, but other ones are really um, building communities, build the rent communities. And that's, that's a, that's another ball game, but that's, I think what's going to happen next for sure. And I know we've talked previously about some of the tax treatment issues related mm -hmm. to this. What are you doing there? What's some of the inside baseball of like best practices for fully maximizing the yield via the, the tax efficiency side of it? 
Um, so something called um, bonus depreciation, cost segregation. And that was a massive, massive um, bonus. I, I don't know. I, so what it is typically is you buy a commercial building, whatever it is, three million bucks, five million. It's an office building, let's say. Well, there's a lot of components in that building that's that can be depreciated instead of at straight line depreciation on a residential home is 27 and a half years on commercials 39 and a half. Don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure that's right. Ask your CPA. But um, so you can straight line depreciate something, or if you can get an engineer to tell you that that water heater is only going to last seven years, that roof is only going to last 15, that dishwasher is only going to last X. You can actually take all of those uh, additional items of depreciation and you can actually get them in year one. So what that really means is it's is you're getting a whole bunch of money in year one in your tax return. And it's called tax segregation, uh, cost, segre cost segregation is what it's called um, with a bonus depreciation is the is the kicker. And you can, you can get a massive return on each of your rental homes if you do a study. A study can cost anywhere from 1100 bucks to a couple thousand, but your return on that might be three or four times that mm. in your first year. So nobody has a crystal ball and knows where the economy is going to head. What are your... Um, what are you anticipating, even if it's not cognitive? I mean, obviously, you're doing mm -hmm. these builds. There's some assumptions built into how the economy is going to go based on your willingness to do that. We've been on this crazy upstreak just for about as long as it seems like it can go, and yet it's still going. Do you have any um, predictions, and are there any ways that you're hedging or adjusting your behavior either on the investment side or on the business side in light of any potential near-term changes? You know, we've been kind of riding the wave for a long time, like you said. Um, you know, I, I I see Florida as a kind of an anomaly. A lot of people are moving down down to Florida. So even we're looking at applications and things, you know, like seven out of 10 are out of state moving here. So it shows me that it's still happening. You know, it's not just Floridians moving now from one house to the other, but it does, I think it's definitely getting closer to to plateauing. Um, you know, it's, but I think I, there's so much things happening still in my market that is exciting and growth size that I haven't made any major adjustments or, or hedging of any bets just yet. You know, I'm watching interest rates, I'm watching rents, I'm watching, you know, delinquencies, I'm watching a lot of things, but, um, but there's, I just, I'm just waiting for a slow, I'm actually hoping for a slowdown of, of prices. We just need to take a pause, I feel like, and absorb what just happened. I mean, rents went up in our market 22%, you know, in the last year. Home prices, I don't have the number, but it went up. It has to be close. It's a massive gain in our markets. Um, Florida has really jumped. You know, Tampa, I think, is at 30% in rents right now. But, um, but yeah, I feel like we just need to kind of make sure that everyone can afford it. You know, jobs are only going to support so much, you know, at 15 bucks an hour, you're not going to be able to rent, you know, a, a, a really almost anything in our, in our market. Now we've, we've bumped the rental prices so high, but I think a lot of that also is being driven by institutions. Um, institutions have entered our market and they are holding prices high and they're not dropping them. 
so they don't really care about how long it's on market. They just want to get their number because that's how they're, you know, evaluated on their portfolio. But that that is in our market, that's a big thing. You know, they're single family or accidental landlords are selling their houses and the institutions are buying them. Um, and and that's creating a smaller rental market for the normal rentals. And they're keeping that price up there. But the demand's there. The demand is incredible. Just like every, you hear everyone else getting 20, 30 applications. It's still happening at record prices. But I think that that needs to slow down. It, it, it just it, it needs to. It's not healthy right now. It, getting that, you know, eight days on market for our entire portfolio for the entire year is insane. That, that, that's it's great for us. Don't get me wrong, but I don't know how healthy that is long term. Ben, you've seen a lot of this shift in the market that I have over the last 10 years. Things have changed. They're a lot different than they were when either of us started in our career. When mm -hmm. you think about the the shift and the changes in the market, if you had a magic wand, if you could wave a magic wand and make one thing different about residential property management, what would it be? It would to convince the... Uh the self-managers to trust us and and believe that we are actually going to make them more money than than themselves we're, we're not a liability we're an asset and you know i would i would i still want to pitch that to everybody and it's so hard to prove but at some point we're going to be able to do that i think by showing numbers and financials and be more of a stockbroker approach from the you know What's in it for me? You know, it's not just an owner, owner portal from Affolio, but you're actually going to be able to see all of the numbers and all of the charts and all of the information. And I can sh prove to you that I can get a higher quality tenant, you know, get you more rent, and you can actually sit and have a beer on a Friday night than be at a Home Depot getting a water heater for your house. Uh, I, I wish I could, I hope I can change that ideal. And I'm sure you're going to push people towards that. What's so interesting about that specific answer that you gave is my, my immediate question is, 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 is it true? Which is kind of like sacrilege, right? You know, these are, these are my people and who I advocate for, but I know as well as you do that there's some fly by night operators in your market and there's some mm -hmm. people that really have it dialed in. If you put yourself in the consumer shoes, which I know you can do because you own investment properties if you were hiring for your one property, a third, a, a third, um, a single family, third party residential property manager, what's the criteria that you would be applying to see which of the management companies mm -hmm. are above the line where that statement is true? They're making you more money by having paying them and which companies are below the line. Cause we're not, I, my audience is not naive enough to think that everybody is above that line in terms of their skill and ability. That's a great question. What would I look for? Um, you know, that's, uh, that's just a good question. I mean, trust, you know, that's, that's the things that go back to us, but that's really what I would like to be able to show a client at some point is what's in it for me. You know, how are you actually different? You know, I know you're going to take away all this pain for me by doing my maintenance and have 24 hours, this and that, but yeah, what's, what are you actually going to do differently than the competitor over here you know i can say well we're going to answer our phone we're you know we have we're departmentalized we're specialists you know we're the highest rated most reviewed property manager in our market you know i can but 
what are what's the main differentiator? You know, that's that's a great thing that needs to be answered soon. <laughs> I, I think what we're both wishing for is some kind of a, I don't know, a graph, a chart, an independent third party, a rating Ass- agency. Assessment of some kind. Yeah, yeah. To, to show yield. You know, my yield on your portfolio, on, on the portfolios that I manage on average is XYZ. Mm-hmm. My competitors is PDQ. You know, is, yeah. is that kind of what we're talking about here? Yeah, that's, I mean, that all we have is Google rating and Yelp ratings right now. And, yeah, you know, is that, is that really how well you can operate or how much money you're going to save me? You know, and I, I would really like to have that differentiator somehow to say, no, these guys are truly the best, you know, because maybe it's because of through client relationships. Maybe it's because maybe there is a rating scale or maybe there is some more transparency we can add to what we're doing um, and to show, hey, no. We can rent this house in, you know, five days for the most money. And I can prove this to you by looking at this or, you know, our maintenance team is cheaper. Look at this or our unit turns less days and look at this, you know, but I don't think the, also the audience is that educated. Sufficiently sophisticated for it to matter. To answer that. Yeah. You say eight days. They're like, is that good? Uh, Yeah, that's pretty good. You know, Um, what do you, it's right now we're just what is property management you know the clients clientele that you get on the accidental side of things they they're not even fully sure what they're signing up for yeah so we're, this is a lot of coaching going on yeah sophisticated man. guys yeah it's a little different well said it's a for for the unsophisticated it's basically a series of proxies right that are yeah. meant to approximate true value whatever whatever that is it's um it can be challenging for consumers but it does make me Grateful for the professionals that know it well enough that they're willing to perform at a level that the customer doesn't even fully understand or appreciate Mm -hmm. because that's their own personal integrity at play in how they conduct themselves and operate their business. It's the golden rule, man. We talk about that a lot in my household with my kids. (laughs) I'm always asking them, "What's what's the golden rule? They know it well. Well, brother, I appreciate the contributions that you make to the industry. You're a modest guy, but you're doing some really interesting stuff. And I know that you've kind of acted as a mentor for folks that have wanted to come out to your office and see the operation in action. So uh, I just want to tell you that you are one of my favorite clients, man. You're one of the people that I feel like I have great conversations with and you consistently take ideas and best practices and just ring the you know what right out of him man <laughs> i love that about you brother. thank you so much jordan i mean your your respect right back to you i couldn't you've given so much back to me and introduced me to all the right people that uh, i can't thank you enough as well well it's a pleasure man yeah awesome until next time be well take care <laughs>